0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. In this time of asymmetrical warfare, terrorism, and the war images that have been projected into our living rooms since Vietnam, it's easy for those not alive 50 years ago to forget or not even consider the fear, the horror, and the specter of nuclear annihilation. The president's recent trip to Hiroshima was a brief reminder that the nuclear reality still lives among us. That reality is what motivated three unlikely activists in July of 2012 to break into one of our nation's seemingly most secure nuclear facilities and in doing so, trigger political, legal, and moral issues that had lied dormant for so long. Telling this powerful story and what it says about the nuclear age is my guest, Washington Post reporter Dan Zak. As a reporter for The Washington Post, Dan Zak has written a wide range of news stories, narratives, and profiles. And it is my pleasure to welcome him here to the program to talk about his first book, Almighty Courage, Resistance, and Existential Peril in the Nuclear Age. Dan Zak, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. It's good to have you here. One of the things that I was was thinking about in connection with this is that it must be odd for younger people today that really have a kind of disconnect from the nuclear age, that even if they're very aware, the war experience they've seen since Vietnam is so far removed from the nuclear aspect. Talk a little bit about that first.
1: Well, yeah, and I would include myself as part of that right. demographic. I, you know, I was born in 1983. Um, I, I came of age after the end of the Cold War. I don't remember the wall coming down. Um, and as such, nuclear weapons just did not have a place in my life like they had in people who grew up, you know, uh, and, and were old enough for the Cuban Missile Crisis, who remember Duck and Cover, who remember The nuclear freeze movement of the early 80s, when you had a million people in Central Park protesting the Reagan arms buildup and the conflict with the Soviet Union. You know, that all predates now several generations of Americans. And I think with the end of the Cold War and with the U.S. no longer staring eye to eye with the Soviet Union and having nuclear weapons on each side in that tension, you know, they've receded. These weapons have receded from popular consciousness, uh, especially Given as you say, the rise of multipolar warfare, you know the, the lack of conflict between superpowers, but the regional war, uh, the threat of terrorism, you know these concerns have crowded out um, what are now I think seen as very dusty anachronistic uh, legacy items of the Cold War, these nuclear arsenals that still very much exist, so you know I kind of came at it as, as someone who um, needed to do some self-education because I was born and came of age at a time after most of the country was fixated on this.
0: It's interesting, and the interesting irony in that is that on the one hand, while it has receded, that has a certain positive value. It's not like we're living on on the hair trigger of nuclear danger as we were during the days of those duck and cover drills that I personally remember well. But on the other hand, forgetting about the nuclear arsenals that still exist in the world today is equally dangerous
1: yeah and actually it's you talk about hair trigger and and there's a big debate that still goes on within small factions of of the nuclear policy world about our uh, uh, posture in that regard. I mean, there are people who uh, do still classify our posture as having them on hair-trigger alerts. The government would refer to them as uh, prompt launch, which means it's still our policy if we detect an incoming nuclear attack to launch our nuclear weapons. So, you know, even though the Cold War has been over for 25 years and this feeling of of standing on the brink of nuclear annihilation, we still have about 4,000 nuclear warheads that are deployed and technically ready to go in a war scenario. And there's plenty of people now who say that the hair trigger uh, alert status of these weapons, which still exists, needs to become a a remnant of the Cold War that we cast away.
0: And of course, there's been a lot of reporting lately and a lot of talk, and this really goes to the heart of, of this story that happened back in July of 2012, about the anachronistic ways that these systems have operated, and about the security that surrounds them.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can talk about it both in a practical sense and in a more higher altitude sense. Practically, um, you know, you can talk about Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which is uh, the city that was the site of this nuclear weapons facility that these activists broke into. There are still buildings in this site that date to the Manhattan Project that are falling apart. Um, that need to be repaired because they're they're handling this very sensitive material and machinery. You can talk about how uh our the silos in the upper plains that have our intercontinental ballistic missiles still run on floppy disks, 8-inch floppy disks. Um so there there's definitely a legacy element to the infrastructure that deals with these weapons that has not been updated. Of course, what that results in is this plan now for us to spend a trillion dollars over the next 30 years to modernize everything to do with the nuclear arsenal, uh, which you could say is a good thing because it makes them more secure. But of course, activists and people who are against that say, well, that means that we are reinvesting in them so that they stick around through the 2080s, that, we, that we're never going to get rid of them because of that reason.
0: Of course, the other aspect to this that somebody's pointed out is that these ancient systems, everything from, from the floppy disks to the lack of security in some ways slows down that hair-trigger aspect that you were talking about before, that to modernize these systems literally brings them to a hair-trigger point that's far more dangerous than the way they operate now.
1: Well, that's true. I mean, you could say, especially in the instance of the floppy disks, that, well, that maybe floppy disks is, is is more impenetrable to hackers. You know, mm-hmm. you start to really digitize everything, and then you expose it to some kind of infiltration um, from hackers. Um, but, you know, w- when you talk about modernizing uh, as a whole, you know, there's some concern that the the modernization we're using on these warheads will, will make them more tempting to be used. There's a particular warhead in our stockpile that's undergoing a modernization that will allow it to have a guided fin. Um, so when it's dropped from a bomber, it can be more precision. It, it, has, it will have a, a, a function on it that will allow the military to customize the explosive force of the bomb, which people argue, well, that means that lowers the threshold for use. If you can make a, a precision tactical nuclear weapon, that might be more tempting for the military, for a president to use in warfare. And if you cross that, if, I mean, if you make it easier to cross that nuclear threshold, that uh, actually brings us closer to uh, to a bad area.
0: And tell us about these activists in July of 2012, who they were, what they were trying to accomplish.
1: Sure, we're coming up on the four-year anniversary of this uh, break-in. Um, one of them is a, a Catholic sister, a Catholic nun. Her name is Sister Megan Rice. She was 82 at the time of the break-in. She's obviously 86 now. Um, And uh, her compatriots in this endeavor were Michael Wally, who is a Vietnam veteran and activist in Washington, D.C., and Greg Borgiobed, who uh, lives in Duluth, Minnesota, and is a house painter by trade. And the three of them um, took it upon themselves to commit this intrepid act of what they consider civil resistance. Uh, You know, walking over a, a wooded ridge in the middle of the night in eastern Tennessee and cutting through four fences of this facility with bolt cutters, spray-painting biblical messages and sprinkling blood on this facility that stores our enriched uranium, and then essentially waiting to be arrested. They, they saw it as an act of witness uh, against bombs, against war-making. Of course, the government saw it and said, well, this is a felony, and they were, they were trying to sabotage the security of the United States.
0: To bring this back around to what we started to talk about, did, did anybody care? Did it have any kind of impact, given how far removed we are from the reality of nuclear warfare?
1: You know, you would expect that this break-in would have gotten more news than it did. Obviously, the, the Eastern Tennessee papers and media covered it. There was a profile of Sister Megan on the front page of the New York Times. Um, but that was kind of really it for media coverage. I did a long story about the break-in for the Post in April of the following year, but the, the, the immediate result was you know, a round of congressional hearings, which mainly consisted of congressmen and women shaking their finger at the Department of Energy, which is supposed to secure all of our warheads, um, and saying, how could this happen? What if they had been terrorists? What then? Are we really safe here? What should we be doing? Um, and of course, the, the break-in uh, caused some uh, improvements to see Security on the site itself. But I think that the discussion that these activists hope to initiate um, nationwide has not really happened. Um, I mean, what they did captured my imagination, and that's why I wrote this book, which I hope does serve as a jumping off point for discussion, because I do think it's an issue that deserves to be discussed about, not only in terms of the why we're doing this, but about the money that we're investing in it. And if, if these three people, these Asphists can easily walk into a site like this. Well, what else could potentially be wrong or not up to snuff?
0: One of the things that you write about are the concerns that the original creators, that those that were present at the creation, the concerns that they had about all of this.
1: Yeah, I mean, actually, we're coming up on the 71st anniversary of the first ever atomic bomb test in New Mexico. Um, that's uh, that's this Saturday is the 71st anniversary. Um, and even then, you had scientists involved in the Manhattan Project who said, y- "Let's publicize this test instead of using it in warfare. Let's let's get the media. Let's let them cover this test so that we can warn Japan and other countries that we have developed this technology that will." turn war into something that could be potentially world-ending, and maybe that will be enough to end World War II. Um, so from the very beginning, you had people who recognized the peril in using these weapons. And of course, we know what's happened since then. Other countries have, have obtained the technology and developed their own arsenals, which creates a, a, an environment in the world where we have these stockpiles, which a lot of people credit with staving off global conflict, staving off a World War III by essentially threatening World III every second of the day. So there's, there's this inherent paradox that has dogged uh, our nuclear arsenal and the nuclear arsenals of the planet uh, for the past 71 years. Talk a little bit about the
0: Oak Ridge facility itself and what it represents.
1: Sure. um, Oak Ridge is a city just outside of Knoxville. Uh, It was created almost overnight during the Manhattan Project. Um, We had to create secret cities all over the country in order to work on developing an atomic bomb before Adolf Hitler did. We were concerned that we were in a race with the third Reich to develop this technology and so we needed to create all kinds of plants and labs uh to to make it happen and oak ridge was created um uh, and tens of thousands of people were were brought in to work um housing was built overnight giant plants were constructed to enrich uranium uh which ended up fueling the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. So Oak Ridge was created for the Manhattan Project and still exists today, obviously, and it's still very much in the business of the atom. And that site that enriched the uranium for the Hiroshima bomb is still in operation today. Um, it's not enriching any uranium, but it is storing and processing it and it does machine work for components of our nuclear, our present nuclear arsenal. So Oak Ridge is still very much a, a, a big part of our nuclear security complex.
0: And to what extent did the security at Oak Ridge increase dramatically as a result of this incident? How much impact did it have?
1: Well, uh, you know, the, the, break-in shut down the site for for two weeks as they figured out what went wrong, what they needed to do to make sure it never happened again. Uh, There were some very kind of quotidian practical adjustments from this break-in. You know, there was more concertina wire was put up around there. Um, Maintenance issues involving security cameras and alarms um, were, you know, they they said these issues can no longer languish for weeks and months. I mean, when, When these activists broke in, there were so many security cameras that were not working. Um, There were a a thousand-plus false alarms uh, on the site every day. And so there was this um, laxness to security that uh, the site has said it has since corrected. So at the very least, um, even if you don't agree with what these activists were trying to do, um, one can thank them, as some congressmen did, for essentially improving the security at the site and exposing some of the flaws.
0: What were the activists really trying to accomplish? What were they trying to which aspect of this were they trying to bring attention to?
1: They were trying to make a couple points. The first was uh, that they believed there is no such thing as security as long as we possess nuclear weapons that nuclear weapons equal insecurity, and they wanted to prove that they could um, in, on one of the, the most secure reputably secure facilities. In the United States, they could essentially just wander in, and that's exactly what they did. And they think that exposes the fallacy of national security. Of course, when they got to the the building that they wanted to get to, which is a, a new-ish, state-of-the-art storage facility for highly enriched uranium, they spray-painted biblical messages, messages of peace on the building. They sprinkled blood on the building, and that was uh, an act of what they think is, is labeling the building with truth. You know, the consequences of using a nuclear weapon would have a devastating effect um, on a civilian population, and that's what sprinkling the blood represented. And then finally, they took uh, small sledgehammers and began to chip away at the base of this building, which is, uh, was a symbolic action. Um, they wanted to disarm the building symbolically and begin uh, its transformation to something that Uh, aided life rather than took life away. It's that biblical command from the book of Isaiah saying, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. That was their direct inspiration. And the action was both symbolic in that sense and and quite literal because they did break in um, and and they looked at it as as an act of bearing witness and the government saw it as an act of trespass, destruction of property, and uh, sabotage.
0: Were there any people in government that were at all sympathetic To what they had tried to do?
1: Yeah, there's um, you know one example is is now Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts, who since uh, the early '80s was introducing legislation into the Congress to um, to reduce the the budgets that are allocated for nuclear weapons. Um, There were congressmen and women that thanked these activists uh, in hearings, in public hearings uh, on Capitol Hill, for exposing these flaws. you know, but there are plenty of, of people in Congress and elsewhere in the government who viewed this action as reckless, as endangering not only the lives of the activists, but the lives of people on the site. Um, and, uh, you know, so they, they understand their, uh, their principles, but not their behavior and not their, their, their actions around those principles, which were viewed as, as potentially very, very dangerous.
0: How did these activists and plowshares, their group, how do they see the fear of proliferation?
1: Well, I think they see – they focus first on the United States, um, which purports to be the leader of the world. And so they think the United States should set an example. Um, of course, for some activists, that means unilateral disarmament. That means without regard for other countries, we should get rid of our weapons, set an example, because it's the right thing to do, it's the legal thing to do, because possessing nuclear weapons are illegal. Um, that's what they believe. Um, so it was actually, they were asked, these three activists were asked by, um, U.S. prosecutors during the trial, you know, have they gone, they, have they gone to Iran? Have they gone to North Korea? Have they gone to Russia to protest nuclear weapons abroad? Um, you know, and, and their response was, no, um, you know, we live here. We're not able to go there. And we believe the United States without regard to the rest of the world should be upholding it's, it's what they consider legal obligations. I'm sure they're concerned with proliferation, but their, their concern starts first and foremost at home. As you
0: research this story, did you come up with a clearer sense of why this event didn't resonate more than it did?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I kind of came to a couple conclusions. One is, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about, which is, you know, the the lack or, or, or nuclear weapons receding from the public consciousness since the Cold War. I think another thing is, and this is my own conclusion, that every generation has enough brain space to consider one existential crisis. And I think for my generations and generations younger, that crisis is environmental. It's climate change. It's global warming. It's sea level rise. And that's enough to think about. Um, and... Of course, that's a gradual existential crisis where nuclear warfare could be a very sudden uh, and immediate existential crisis. And I think the third reason is because unlike environmental concerns and climate change, there's really nothing an individual can do in his or her own life to have some tangible effect on nuclear weapons. You know, if you're concerned about climate change, the environment, you can compost, you can get a hybrid car, um, you know, you can do carbon offsets. There are things you can change about your life that make you feel like you have some agency over the problem. You know, nuclear weapons are the province of a very classified and rarefied realm in the government and the military. Yeah, you can write, you can write your congressman or woman, you can hold signs in a protest, you know, but there's really nothing you can change about your behavior, your day-to-day life to, to have any impact. And I think that that, that and the immensity of the destructive power of these weapons make, make, the arsenal and nuclear power in general abstract in people's minds. It just makes it very hard to think about. And and what these activists try to do and why I wrote about them is they try and capture the public's imagination even for a brief moment to think about this immense but very abstract power.
0: Dan Zak, his book is Almighty, Courage, Resistance, and Existential Peril in the Nuclear Age. Dan, I thank you so much for spending time with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you.